Welcome everyone. I am Andrew Duckworth and I would like to thank you for joining us for our special series of BJJ podcasts on the COVID-19 pandemic. As was already discussed in our first overview podcast with our Editor-in-Chief, Professor Farah Adad, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic is being felt throughout the world and without doubt will have affected every facet of our professional and personal lives. Through these podcasts, we hope to reflect on the main issues that have arisen as a consequence of the COVID-19 pandemic for us in orthopedic and trauma surgery, as well as on our profession as a whole. This will include the impact on our day-to-day practices, how we interact with patients and the decisions we make regarding their management, as well as the effects on research now and moving forward in the future. We hope to give you insights from colleagues throughout the UK, as well as from across the globe, including hearing from colleagues working in some of the most worst affected areas in the world. We also feel it's an opportunity to discuss the future in terms of both the recovery phase and what we can anticipate when the worst of the pandemic is over. So today I have the pleasure of being joined by one of my editorial board colleagues, Professor John Skinner from the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital in Stanmore, who without doubt will be able to give us some great insights into the impact of the pandemic on our profession, the challenges we are facing each day in terms of service delivery, and finally, what is in store for us moving forward. Many thanks, John, for taking the time to join us today. So, John, if we could start off with our profession, you know, our our community, our trauma and orthopaedic community, what do you feel have been the key impacts of the pandemic so far on our profession as a whole? I think for for everyone, really, the impact has been wide-ranging and dramatic. Everyone has stopped doing elective orthopaedic surgery uh, or dramatically cut it back. Trauma has reduced as an effect of um, isolation and um, and distancing. People are not going out so, so often, so they're not playing football on a Saturday afternoon and, and getting broken legs. There is much less traffic, there's less road traffic accidents, so the actual volume of trauma cases has significantly reduced. And that's something that was found in Italy and all the countries, that, that the amount of trauma goes down, but people still fall and the bulk of the work tends to be hip fractures in the elderly. Uh, They may fall less, but they fall at home and still get fractures. And these continue to be one of the life challenging or threatening injuries that we deal with. Mm -hmm. We still see periprosthetic fractures. We still see infection, either uh, prosthetic joint infection or metalwork infection, or sepsis of native joints. And all of these continue. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the dramatic uh, uh, um, changes overall. I think what happened in many units, particularly around London, is it's now a consultant-led and provided service. In some hospitals, juniors and trainees have been reallocated uh, to even to intensive care facilities, particularly in London, which we have to keep an eye on. Um, and the way we work has changed. Many hospitals now divert the ambulant trauma directly to fracture clinics where consultant uh, orthopaedic surgeons will make the first assessment and appraisal uh, and start the, the treatment plan. So, so many hospitals have a COVID type A&E and a non-COVID type A&E and then minor injuries or orthopaedic injuries directed straight to orthopaedic surgeons. That's a very good overview, John, and certainly that would what we would be experiencing north of the border as well, and I think it's just slowly all, all, all moving through, and certainly the, the patterns we've seen as well have been mainly of hip fractures and certainly uh, infection as well. 
In terms of our profession, though, in terms of do you, do you, th- do you notice the differences in terms of how our, our community is dealing with it? And obviously, the, you know, the fears of surgeons themselves and their, and their family members. I think that's true. I think that's true of the whole, the whole country, that um, everyone is unsettled by this. This is out with anyone's experience. And it's frightening. And we genuinely have friends and colleagues who are scared. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to keep it in perspective. But these are real human feelings. It affects almost every aspect of everyone's life. And it, we know some very high profile people who have been infected. So if the heir to the throne, the prime minister, the health secretary, the chief medical officer can all catch this disease, then everyone feels vulnerable and everyone feels uh, certainly as if it could happen at any time and that's that's difficult that's unsettling for all you know i totally i totally agree and i think it's one, th- one obviously concentrating on the a busy time in our in our practices and, and a difficult time but also thinking about our loved ones and family members is is, is very it's very difficult um sort of moving on to that and related to that though is is obviously uh, the role of uh, the ppe and obviously testing as well uh, PPE is sort of the personal protective equipment. What's your current understanding of the sort of, I suppose, guidelines, the availability and the uh, indications and, and efficacy of, of that? Well, the, first and foremost, the Public Health England released their latest version of guidance on PPE last Thursday. And we're all trying to follow that. I think it is fair to say that it is needed for any aerosol generating procedure and certainly most operations are considered that. Certainly that guideline suggested Mm -hmm. that you needed to have full PPE to operate on patients. I think um, that it's it's been available certainly down south, but initially I think the supply chain was, was, was targeting where most of the cases were. And that's, you can understand that on one, one extent, but it has to be available in every single hospital in the land because when you need it, you really need it. And it's got to be worn uh, predominantly for us aerosol generating procedures. We think, I mean, we know that the greatest risk seems to be intubation and instrumentation of the oropharynx and the upper airways. And that's something where anyone involved in those procedures or procedures near the the face and the head and neck and the throat uh, need to wear full um, PPE, at all times, including the FFP3 respirator masks. And for surgery, any surgical case where the patient is suspected or potentially COVID positive or known to be COVID positive, the patient should be intubated in the operating theater under the laminar flow. And I think that's something that has been controversial, but the evidence does seem to show that if it's done in the center of the laminar flow, the air is being directed downwards and therefore away from the anaesthetist uh, and it goes through the cycles and the filters uh, and then uh, the risk is the greatest then and for 10 to 15 minutes afterwards until the air the air changes have cleaned the air and uh, and got things to a safe level and that does seem to be the expert evidence that we've had important down from the government uh, PHA and it seems to be what's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Any surgeon operating in on a patient should also wear the full protective clothing, uh, and that generally means the overshoes, an apron, a fluid-resistant gown, 
two or sometimes three pairs of gloves, depending on how you manage your donning and doffing procedures. Mm. And FFP3, face mask, eye protection, and the visor, along with a, uh, a hood that protects the neck as well. Mm-hmm. And everyone should be trained uh, in, in donning and doffing of that. And it's probably doffing that we need to be most careful of. Mm-hmm. Orthopedic surgery often use power tools and uh, uh, maybe aerosol generating. I think the risk seems to be lower at the, the surgical end, but low risk is not the same as no risk. And so everyone in theatre should have should wear those those precautions. And I think that's the guidance that uh, PHE have given us, and certainly uh, that we recommend and follow from the British Orthopaedic Association. No, I totally agree. I think that's a, a brilliant summary, actually, of of where we're sort of at now. And certainly, that's what we would be doing here in in Edinburgh. And I think uh, you you likewise. And I think obviously with the laminar flow, like you said, the current evidence certainly suggests that that's that's what we should be should be doing. If we sort of move on then, obviously that, that sort of covers our sort of PPE and, and, and protection of our, of our community. In terms of our roles, I mean, obviously some surgeons or many surgeons are being redeployed to other areas and specialties to help with, with the crisis. What areas do you feel we can add the most value and how do you feel as surgeons uh, we have or can best adapt to, the, to these roles? It's interesting. I think from where I work, um, people have been deployed in the Nightingale Hospital at the Excel Centre, and some orthopaedic surgeons have volunteered for that, some anaesthetists, some uh, ODPs, so staff have done that, trainees have been keen to be involved, so they have put themselves forward to do it. I think that we've certainly heard at the BOA of some units where the trainees are being diverted to intensive care units. Uh, to help and that reflects that the world is changing whereas previously you would expect one-to-one nursing of a ventilator patient ventilated patient it's now clearly more than that it's one to six um, and therefore what with a with a selection of helpers and what we seem to find what the, the evidence is saying from around the world is that these patients when they're ventilated, benefit significantly from proning and from being turned. And when the patients are turned prone, uh, the oxygenation seems to improve. So some people can and have been uh, prepared to, to work in those roles. I think that orthopaedic surgeons, it's, it's difficult for all of them. Orthopaedic surgeons are practical people who enjoy doing things and genu- generally enjoy being busy. And it's quite frustrating for some when they can't do their uh, elective work, um, that they feel quite frustrated and willing to help, but frustrated and a little bit sidelined. And I think that's something that we all need to find the best way that we can, can get going. Most people want to help uh, and can help, but it's, it's sometimes it's not always clearly defined where that role is. No, I would completely agree with that, John. And certainly, uh, our experience here, I think, trying to redefine that we all, all like you say, want to help and um, and want to work hard. It's just finding your role within that, whether it be you know helping in ITU. I mean, some of our surgeons are now helping with minor injuries, and we've sort of taken over a bit of that that role because um, we can be useful there. And obviously, it's still maintaining our trauma services. But I think it's it's just wanting to contribute in the in this difficult time. And I think most people are trying to do that as effectively as they can. If we if we sort of move on, then. It, more to our trauma orthopedic services we've sort of alluded to it already with in terms of how trauma care has has, has, has changed 
um, uh, and obviously elective 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 uh, surgeries um, um, obviously stopped at the moment in most places, if not all. What do you feel in terms of been the biggest impact on trauma orthopedic services, but particularly focusing, I suppose, on on cancer service? Obviously, with with with, with where you work being, you know, one of the biggest centres, if not the biggest centre, dealing with it uh, uh, normally day to day and and particularly now. So, at our hospital, I mean, you're you're right that cancer the cancer burden is significant across all specialties. And although sarcoma is less than 1% of cancer, it is it's the orthopedic and trauma patients uh, where we, we see that. And the other thing is in metastatic uh, disease in the bones with pathological and impending fractures. And I think that we, everyone has had to prioritize work and the, what's important and what's urgent takes precedence. Cancer often does that and the, the sad and awful thing about sarcoma is it tends to affect, affect children and young adults with a second peak in later life. Yeah. So we, we must keep that service going and it is continuing uh, to go at the moment. Most sarcomas, most bone sarcomas or certainly the osteosarcomas and Ewing's have a, a neoadjuvant chemotherapy regime which is a really quite a strong one. It does, does render the marrow right down to very low cell levels and then rescue um, for surgery. So neoadjuvant chemotherapy, then surgery, which is often very big surgery, often requiring HDU, ITU support, and then as soon as recovered, back onto adjuvant chemotherapy. Mm. It's important that this is kept, kept going, and at our hospital we are prioritising that, running a, a sarcoma list uh, every day of the week, and sometimes a, a list and a half. So that continues uh, to go on. And it will be very difficult for some hospitals to do that. And I think it's important that those treating cancer are talking to each other, collaborating and cooperating so that the, the needs and the bottlenecks are identified in advance and working together in this thankfully rare field of, of uh, cancer surgery, can, can people work together and find solutions. And that's something that orthopaedic surgeons are doing up and down the country in many, many fields. So it does go on. Yes, there's significantly more pressure. And I think we're all worried about having very immunocompromised young patients uh, in this time where we know immunocompromised is such a risk with this disease. No, absolutely. I totally, totally agree. And I think, like I say, it's not just our cancer services; it's cancer services across uh, across the specialties, isn't it? Really, and obviously, like here in Scotland, you know, they've 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 paused cancer screening for for many of the the common um, malignancies, um, and it's a difficult time. But trying to maintain those services, I think, through collaboration, like you say, is is going to is 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 key at this time. So, sort of moving on on from that, John, into the future, I suppose, if we, we want to call it that, in, t in sort of envisaging where we're going to be moving forward. I know nobody can predict the future. Certainly, this is a very unpredictable course that, uh, that we all know we're, we're on with this pandemic. But how do you envisage the future moving forward for our specialty, I suppose, the immediate futures and the challenges that we're going to be facing, and also how we're going to recover from this and get, hopefully, back to some, some sense of normality? Well, I think there's, there's no real telling how this this goes i think that how the disease behaves and the virus behaves over the next 10 days will be critical to all our understanding of how long this lasts and how it goes and there are some great brains in government across the country in healthcare looking at modeling and and the safe time when uh, the lockdown can be released and of course it's at such a complicated 
uh, equation, really. Um, but some very bright people are looking at it. What I think we all know is that the effects of this are going to last several months. This is not going to return back to normal quickly. And it may not return to the world we knew um, completely at all. Things may change. Just before this happened, one of the biggest pressures on trauma and orthopedics was the number of patients waiting for elective surgery or elective and trauma surgery. It had been up to, uh, it was over half a million patients on waiting lists for surgery. And the big problem was how we were going to face this and how we were going to deliver the best care for patients to give what are very good and effective operations uh, to improve quality of life. And that looked like a big problem until the COVID pandemic came along. But those patients will still be there. Traditionally, waiting lists have increased by 30 to 40,000 patients a month. That may go down a bit at the moment because patients are not being seen. It may be that patients' priorities will change. Um, certainly patients at the moment are not all that keen to come into hospital if it's not essential. Um, and two things. One, they feel they don't want to add to the burden. And secondly, they feel that hospitals are where the virus is, is concentrated. And so they want to stay away from that. And what that is doing already a little bit is altering the presentation. So some people are sitting on conditions and we're seeing some late presentations of things like quadriquina uh, and some injuries as well, some fractures that people sit on rather than going to go in and get an x-ray, they sit on it for a while, it's not getting better and then turn up. Absolutely. And if that is something in children, then it's, we've got to remain vigilant and it doesn't matter what epidemic is going along, it's, you need to look at delayed presentation, still has connotation, you need to make sure is this genuine, does the story fit? Could this possibly be non-accidental injury as people Absolutely. are cooped up together, not going out, everyone's under pressure. So we have to keep thinking about all the things we would normally do. We are seeing altered presentation. It may be in the future that patients have a different tolerance or a different attitude to work the risks of surgery and going to hospital. That's, that's to be seen. But it is likely that when this does get back to normal, and we all pray and hope that it will, and expect that it, it will get to some level of normality, then there will always be work for trauma and orthopedic surgeons to do. Um, I think there will be a lot of patients on the waiting list that will have to try and in, double our efforts to try and get the work done. Other things were that the patients may be slightly deconditioned, that these yeah. patients are not as fit as they, they were previously. And we're working with physiotherapists and patient groups to try and come up with exercise type programs that you can have while waiting for surgery until we get back to normal. I think that's important to keep people active, but they may well be, um, be, be more, more or less fit and less, less cardiovascularly robust. The other thing is that some conditions will have deteriorated and we may be operating on more complex uh, aspects and conditions where the results may be slightly more difficult and not quite as, as good as we're used to. And the other thing is that the COVID precautions in theatre slows every theatre in the land significantly uh, down. And the number of cases that we, we can do may go down. Are we going to have to wear COVID protection going forwards? Absolutely, yeah. Is a question that's unknown at the moment. Mm -hmm. So I think those are the things that are going to change. I think things will improve. We have to be positive, but I think it's going to last several months.
Yeah. And I think I do think the next 10 days will guide us. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're 100% right, John. I think that's a great summary as well of, of sort of our challenges ahead and, and, and how potentially our practices could change in the future. Uh, and I think, like you say, you know, the, you know, the, uh, one of our worries, you know, for example, in trauma surgery is that we're going to have a lot of post-traumatic reconstructions to do in the future because of all these patients that unfortunately we just can't get to at the moment or delayed presentations, as you say. Um, but I think, you know, like you say, we have to be positive. We will come out the end of it eventually. It's just when that will be. Um, well, John, I think that's all we have time for, but thank you again so much uh, for your really interesting comments and insights today. We really do appreciate you taking the time to join us. And obviously, we send our best wishes to you and your colleagues and their families through these difficult times. And finally, as always, we'd also like to acknowledge and thank our many colleagues around the UK and across the world for their ongoing tireless contributions in the delivery of care to our patients during this pandemic and difficult time. We at The Journal thank you, and we'll always try and to continue to try and support you in any way we can. Thanks for listening.